Chris. I paused because last time I was on one of these interviews, I started to call Christina Kara. It started with the cook. <laughs> I went, hello, Chris, Tina. Uh, so how are you? I am good. I just got done having a a committee meeting with uh, one of my doctoral students who's doing some really, really interesting work looking at, um, she wants to look at dopaminergic expansion. And mm. this follows directly on the interview we did last year, I think. And I'm not sure you were on it. It might have been a, a Malika interview. I think it was with Alicia DeLuise, Josh's postdoc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in her previous life, she wrote a paper on dopaminergic expansion in Homo erectus. And so when we were preparing yeah. for that interview, I just geeked out big time on that paper and loved it so much. And it relates to our fireside relaxation research. And uh -huh. uh, so my doctoral student who is studying the the fire using that as a paradigm is is going to is, is going to look at it in relation to fire use. So Very cool. Pretty cool. Nate Dominey from Dartmouth is on the committee. Got a biologist to expert in the endocrine system and all the things. All the things. We have all of the all the people on, so that was fun. All the things. My goodness. How's life otherwise? I feel like it's been a while. Uh life is decent. Um Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm having I'm I'm last year was a dark year for me. Um I just was like not in a good place mentally. And this year, and part of that, like how that manifests as someone who likes to write and likes to like, you know, I like doing this, you know, like yeah. putting stuff out there. Like I'm, I'm, I'm back into it. Mm -hmm. So well, that's good. Uh, that means I'm actually adding more work to my plate. I'm, I'm in the process of doing two book proposals, one for a tattooing and human nature book and one for a, a an edited volume taking the transcripts from all the interviews we've done on my other podcast and turning mm -hmm. that into an edited, like a sort of like supplementary or something. So, and to do that, we we have to, we have to do more because we, we don't feel it's thorough enough. So now I have a new crew on the other podcast and we're rebooting that as the tattooing and human nature podcast it used to be called the inking of immunity podcast. So, so many things. So all I guess the I things. have, I guess I have a few things and it's, it's homecoming. And it's Kentuck, which is uh -huh. the best folk art festival in the world. It's happening this weekend. And one of my children who doesn't go to school here came back to visit with his girlfriend. So we're entertaining. My goodness, that is a lot. Uh, but now I can say that I have successfully submitted my HBA abstract. <laughs> I have to. So all the clicks people heard in the background while you were talking was me copying and pasting emails for every co-author. That's funny. So last year, folks have heard about this, so I'll, I'll mention it again. Over this past year, as we've been interviewing people whose articles were in AJHB, we're telling them we're compare we're doing a, a a study to see if talking about your articles on this show drives more people to look at them. So I actually. I had an undergrad present on this last year and that person won't be attending this year and we have new data and I help, I don't have anything else I really want to present on this year. And I was on the fence about even going because I'm on sabbatical in the spring, but one, if you register, you can also buy a ticket to go to the La Brea Tar Pits. I did so, see that, but I kind of just want to go on my own. I don't want to go in a big group. 
either way, I'm like, <laughs> dude, I gotta go to La Brea Tar Pits. So I gotta go to the meeting now just so I can like but I do want to go with a bunch of nerdy guys. Like I'd rather just like go with my friends than well, like yeah, a okay. giant group of people right, who bought right. tickets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> so Yeah, yeah, yeah me. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. Uh, yeah, 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 because I understand and I agree with that. <laughs> you by yourself, I thought was lame. You with the smaller group of anthropologists, you know, I now understand, and I, I assume I am included. That's why I'm like, that, yeah. <laughs> and and don't tell me if I'm not, because I want to assume that I'm included. Well, now I'm not sure I'm included because you want to buy the tickets uh, through the website. I wasn't even going to go for uh, till because I'm on sabbatical, and I'm like, you all LA pressured me. You all during, pressured me to go during, during my, your sabbatical. My leave. Yeah, I know. I remember. I'm feeling I'm I, I internalize that guilt. You didn't have to tell me. I'm like, ah oh, shit, I got her to come last year. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I'm, uh-huh. frankly, I'm on sabbatical. So unless I'm in Samoa, I'll probably go. Because what else am I gonna be yeah. doing? I well, see, I mean I'll be there's lonely. definitely a part I'll of me see. that wished I didn't go uh last year, but that was only because of the sinus infection and subsequent allergic reaction oh, yeah. of doom. Every but... year I am both happy that I went and also why did I go? And never going again. Yeah, no, it's, it's <laughs> part of his travel and part of it's, you know, the Playboy Bunny Club that we had a conference in last year. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> never again. <laughs> that was so wrong. That was that was a rough conference and not in the way that people might think from us saying that it was just it was foul. It was. It smoke, was not. The pleasant. whole thing was filled with smoke. You just burn all the time. And you just felt no like, natural this light. Is, <laughs> no, like this is just wrong. Like this is wrong in so many ways. Mm-hmm. But we have a guest waiting in the in well, the waiting room. But up. okay, so let, uh, let's okay. introduce him because it's okay. super exciting. Thanks. We both are. You're okay. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm managing. I'm overwhelmed, but that's that's status quo. So anyway, anyway, we have Dr. Rob Tennyson on the show today, and he is currently a post 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 a he's pasta. He's a post doctoral post doctoral. <laughs> Postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Biobehavioral Health at Penn State University. Oh shit, he's a and, yeah. Uh, but he's also a postdoctoral fellow. I can't say that word in today. Utah. Uh, yeah, in the sociology department at the University of Utah. Okay, so we can ask him where he spends his time. Yeah, where do you live, dude? But no, last time I spoke with him, he was at Penn State uh, physically. Anyway, he received his PhD from the University of Washington in 2022. Uh, He is a biological anthropologist specializing in psychosocial stress, aging, and student-athlete mental health and well-being. His research program leverages diversity both within and between populations to tease apart how differences in social environments, physical environments, and behavior influence biological aging in humans, uh, connecting lived experiences to molecular, immunological, and demographic processes. Let's bring Rob on. I was just going to, so, so for transparency's sake, we're all big fans of Rob and his work with athletes, and we both are interested in athletics, and I know Kara... It's why I have to leave early. (laughs) Yeah, in depth about his work. And he collected some data for me. So we we know Rob well, and it's going to sound like we're talking over him in a second because we are very excited. (laughs) That's that's your pattern. No. Yes. I never do that. Oh, also, look at my new Trash Panda mug. Oh, wait. Isn't that cute? The Trash Panda's from Huntsville? What? The team? The trash pandas. Oh, are... no, no, no. So I do have trash panda stuff because a friend got it for me as a gift. But this is just a raccoon mug, which oh, is adorable. I was going to say, because I my student who was with me in the field this summer is from Huntsville and kept talking about the trash pandas. What's up, oh, yeah, Rob? Yeah. Hey, Rob. <laughs> hey, 
I just, I, I wanted to hear the trash panda stories. I know people well, always come in on the, the random mug. comments. Yeah, there's the adorable mug of a trash panda, but not specifically the trash panda mascot of the Huntsville minor league baseball team. Yeah. <laughs> not to be confused. <laughs> Definitely not to be confused. Anyway, hey Rob, welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here. Well, well we're happy to have you. We um, are. And now we are also curious because, like. The last two times I've spoken to you have been in two opposite ends of the country. So where are yeah. you currently? <laughs> uh, I, I'm currently in Seattle. <laughs> okay, so we won't jump yet to how you're straddling two postdocs in two different places. We'll get to that in a second because you're going to walk us up to that. So we always start off every show. We want to know how the so how the science is made, the sausage of science, how the sausage is made, how the science is made. It's a joke. We start off... Mm -hmm wanting to know how the scientist who makes the sausage, who makes the science. So tell us about your background. You know, what motivated you to go into anthropology and human biology, your particular dissertation, and then, of course, how the hell are you managing two postdocs in two different states? Yeah, actually, that, that is a lot. That's a lot more when it's said out loud. <laughs> um, well, I think uh, I originally came to anthropology probably when I was like two or three. The happiest place I could be was at the zoo, especially sitting in front of the gorillas and orangutans. Um, lucked out. I, I grew up in the Twin Cities, so we had two wonderful zoos there, the Minnesota Zoo and the Como Park Zoo and Conservatory. And basically just pulled my parents there every weekend, um, spent more time there than anywhere else. Um, and then growing up was always the kid with the primate books checked out of the library. Um, and then when I got to college, was thinking I wanted to major in math. Um, but then walked into a primate social behavior course taught by Richard Wrangham and was like, wait, you could actually do this? This is like all these books, all these things I was, I was seeing. People are actually doing this in real life that I can meet and then I can do it too. So kind of followed that lead, um, had a short stint in the field, which I think is probably why I switched over to focus more on humans. I caught leishmaniasis. And then the stress and inflammation going into that whole process of like the multiple month treatment. Can you tell listeners what that is? Yeah. So leishmaniasis is a flesh eating protozoa. It's uh, microscopic. There's several different types. And I looked out and got the type that uh, if untreated can eat away at your mucal membranes, not recommend trying to Google it. <laughs> So I was like one of three people in the state of Minnesota that But also, like, you know what we're about to do, right? We're literally about to Google this because you said that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you can choose. <laughs> and then I think just the stress with that, I was like, maybe I should uh, focus on humans and stay in the, in the States for a little bit um, before jumping right back into that. Because that was the treatment for it is not fun. Like, so yeah, you know, like yeah. take us through to grad school and you know, like how you got into what it is you are doing now, which is you know, human biology, but also within the anthropology of sports realm. So starting grad school, I was really interested in how stress impacted um, our biology more broadly. Um, started off being interested in epigenetics. I started working with Dan Eisenberg, kind of convinced me of the, the intrigue of telomeres, um, which for people who don't know, are the uh, nucleotide caps that protect the ends of our chromosomes, shorten as we age. Um, and there was some work really pushing this idea that if we had, were exposed to more stress, that, that these would shorten more quickly and then increase a range of morbidities and, and risks of death. And because stress in biology is such a big field. I started focusing particularly on student athletes when I was recruited to TA for an anthropology of sports class. And then I worked through a way to meld that with my stress and telomere work. Since people have found that stress was associated with shorter telomeres, but not everybody, it was it's a very heterogeneous field on this. And so 
How can both these things be true? How can we have a lot of people finding the association and having a lot of people not? Um, and so trying to really trying to figure out the mechanisms of that, of what's happening between stress and then like shortening that led to some of the hypotheses in my dissertation and others that I'm still trying to follow up on. Sue Athletes just offered a, a great sample, one that I had insider knowledge on, being a member of the, the community. So I was just very motivated to make that my thing. So we're going to dig into your dissertation and your work in a little bit. But I also know yeah. you said explicitly you just wanted to riff about sports with us. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we should be very explicit about this and say that you were a student athlete, that you played collegiate football, correct? Yeah, I was uh, unlucky in the sense that I was injured very much <laughs> most of the time. And that was another reason why I'm interested in stress in athletes is uh, it was very stressful being injured and, you know, working for your whole life kind of to a certain goal and then not being able to capitalize on it because of injuries and, and other things. Right. And the world of sports. So I'm at Notre Dame, which when we talk about conferences, it means one thing for one sport, another thing for another sport and another thing for the rest of the sports, uh, being independent for football, Big Ten for hockey and ACC for everything else. And we've got Chris over in solidly in the SEC, no breaking a part of that. And then you come from UW, which is are now, uh, well, not quite yet, but about to be a part of the Big Ten. So let's talk about conference realignments. What are your thoughts, Rob? Because I know we've all got thoughts. <laughs> Uh, yes, so so many, <laughs> so many thoughts on this. I think um, both going from the range of like, what is this going to mean for student athlete health? How are they going to work in all this traveling? Um, I've heard it might be easier to play night games, like if you're from the West Coast going to the East Coast, and then actually getting back earlier than you would if you played a late night game somewhere else on the West Coast. So this could be working both ways. But um, I think in general, it's just a really great case study in the role of money in college sports <laughs> and how we're driving a lot of the well-being and all these students lives because of tv deals and the realities of just this larger industry that's working around them i uh i this this was made super super poignant to me uh last summer when i was in hawaii because as a football fan uh, i work with a lot of samoans who are in football like the tonga bailoas i i know the family he was a quarterback here and so i know their family and so when i'm in hawaii i'm like talking to them and now that i'm there i'm suddenly conscientious or aware of the incredible time difference and i'm like holy shit you people to watch the 11 what is it 11 a.m game for me are getting up at 6 a.m. And they're like, yeah, but the last, the primetime games for you are done at six and we can still go out and party afterwards. So I'm like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> There's a cost benefit there. Some, some pros and cons of being behind. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's really interesting because this decision was made purely for football and it is a decision that affects football teams the least given any given season, a football team is only away six games the entire season. And so uh, I think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I'm uh, on the faculty athletic board here at Notre Dame. And this year I'm the faculty liaison for the, the baseball team. And they spend their first six weeks of the season away because weather in South Bend is not baseball friendly. And now all of a sudden you're adding West Coast teams to the ACC. And like... This is harmful. So like the decision is made for a team that it affects the least, but harms every other team the most. And I feel like football needs to kind of be separated out when it comes to conferences, because making these decisions based on football is harming a majority of student athletes. Yeah, so many, so many other sports have multiple games a week. And if you're traveling 
having to go coast to coast multiple times in a week or even two or three weeks span, that's a lot. That football really is the only one that has that week structure. They get to plan the whole week. You can set your sleeping schedule, your waking schedule, your training schedule for a few days before you go do it. But you have a lot of strategizing you can do with all these other teams like baseball, basketball. You're playing so many times a week. Like I I really feel bad for people having to do this and and having it be a football decision, choosing the one sport that has the weirdest setup um, to drive everything else really doesn't seem uh, fair. And then um, uh, the the name, image, and likeness that is uh, the money associated with NIL. Uh, also, I'm guessing, and I don't have any data on this, but given that I'm at a football school, right, the, the money coming in for name, image, and likeness for players, even when the there are coordinated efforts, I know we have a some sort of like cabal or something that manages it all and gives every recruit 10,000 bucks or something like a flat fee. Right. But like those are largely for football players. And so you have transformational wealth coming into football um, that may defray or buffer some of those travel and, and other health concerns, but not necessarily for others. And and I've similar, similar to your story, Rob, I was actually sitting uh, with some ex athletes uh, at a bar last week talking about some of these, these things, and they are, they're huge. And not just athletes getting injured and not being able to play, but they were talking about draft picks, like top draft picks who went off and made a lot of money, but then their career still did not blossom like there's an incredible amount of stress and i don't know like unrealized i guess anxiety to, to like perform and be out there and do that that athletes struggle with that i think are is is somewhat unique so where what do you see as the future of anthropology and sports like wh where is this going to go well i think first um we need a lot more people just looking at it I think as we're all three here talking about how many different areas of our lives. I mean, I guess we've been talking about the lives of the athletes, but whole local economies run off of these sports and getting people to come in and people's identities are built up. Families are are made and broken by our allegiances to different teams, like especially college football. <laughs> and so, and it's a really weird thing. I think in the U.S. we have so many constructs of sports or sports play such an interesting role here. It's really strange that although there's some really good writing on it that we don't have more people on it because it is i think because it's so infused in our day-to-day -day lives like we just think that it's normal and take it for granted that i don't know humans are somewhere we're going to make a big sports industry that then drives the lives of millions of kids and i think there's also been a focus at least with an anthropology and it's not as big of a movement as i think any of us would like but it's much more culturally focused at this point and yeah. so the kind of the biological aspect of anthropology of sports has been kind of ignored maybe even intentionally because a lot of people don't consider it like a valid avenue of research which i think is a massive mistake and we've got some really good folks changing that like danny longman for example but yeah it, it's been Kind of shoved off for quite some time is it because yeah, it's like, a game and it's not taken seriously like people around here because and i don't mean to cut you off so i'm going to mute myself after this question but i just want to sort of add a little flavor to that uh around here as you point out the economy is built on you see me wearing my roll tide shirt it's friday like and and, and karis like that she's in the stadium right now the stadium is the middle of our campus and we're setting yeah. up for homecoming literally as we speak I see a bunch of random people just coming to campus because they treat it like, you know, an actual, what is the word I'm looking for? They come here just to see Notre Dame. Right. Yeah. And yeah. yet I have colleagues here who argue with me that it's just a game. I'm like, dude, it is not just a game. It's life. 
how is this different from going to church every week? You're just as dedicated to Alabama. It, would you tell me that it's just religion? It's not a big deal. So yeah, like even if you're not a sports fan or that into it, it's impacting your life in huge ways. And if you're not noticing that, that's like, I think you just aren't maybe looking close enough for it. <laughs> but Kara, I agree with that idea that, yeah, we're slowly adding more in biological anthropology. And I think, um, I think some people also have this idea that there's a lot of research already done with student athletes and athletes. Like maybe they think, oh, this, this research is already being done with different people, but there's completely different avenues and ways and questions that anthropologists can ask of this that others aren't. Whole, like the identity, how identity might be impacting your stress responses, which might be interacting with performance or how maybe part of a team you feel. Um, and there's just this really intense intersection that we really need to look into. And Chris, like he said, just seeing it as more than just a game. Yeah. And I think it's critically important to kind of understand these physical and physiological capacities as well when it comes to being able to reconstruct our evolutionary past. Uh, but let's talk about the work. <laughs> that you are doing that puts these things together. Uh, so some of your work look at the ways physical activity could moderate the association between adult telomere length and childhood stress. Uh, so what kind of brought you to this potential relationship of just like, did you wake up one day and be like, there's a connection, there's gotta be between physical activity and telomere length and go from there. What was the inspiration? Uh, it was revealed to me in a dream. No, I think, uh... Part of it was uh, I've been looking at some some of our data sets, trying to look at stress and telomere length and not really finding things and trying to think about why why am I not seeing it in, in some of these um, data sets? Thinking about the mechanisms of like how this hypothesized association actually happens is kind of what led me to looking at physical activity was that one of the main pathways we think that stress might impact telomere length is through increasing inflammation. And so there's the idea that with early childhood stress, you're going to have higher markers of C-reactive protein, other um, innate and inflammatory responses that say elevated throughout adulthood. And then we think that that leads to faster telomere shortening. So there's something that then impacts that interaction between stress and inflammation. I expected it then to hit this longer term pathway um, from stress to telomere length. And actually, there was a paper, uh, what really got me on this was there's a 2013 paper by Tom McDade and Morgan Hoke looking at um, the Cebu um, and finding that the association between stress and CRP in adulthood was moderated by their the microbial environments that they had in early life. So the idea was that if you had these microbial challenges, that your inflammation and in your immune system was reacting more to this kind of more pressing challenge than it was to stress, or maybe it was regulated um, more strictly. And so thinking about then um, physical activity, because this was something else that I was interested in, largely because of his interactions with the immune system, um, and thinking about it as a stressor in itself, and something that our bodies need to actually deal with. But then the difficulty with looking at stress and physical activity in telomere length is often that uh, stress and physical activity are almost always covariant together, mm -hmm. where usually the times when we're really stressed, probably not going to be as physically active or way too physically active as opposed to when you're not stressed, might be where you actually have control of your time, you're able to regularly do exercise or, or other things that promote your well-being. And so that what brought me to student athletes uh, was that this was a population that were both stressed out and incredibly physically active. So just to just to sort of like I want to I want you to finish that thought, but we're talking about mm -hmm. basically a comparison between chronic and acute stress, and how someone who has both forms is is managing, and there's a the acute stress, some of it's distress, but some of it's eustress. So in other words, mm -hmm. 
some of it's like workout stress and it, it is distress, but some of it is the, the, it's just the physiological stress of being an athlete and high achieving one that they're doing on purpose. So like that's you stress. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that an yeah. accurate? Okay. Cause that's, that's impacting all these pathways, all these inflammatory energetic pathways that we think lead stress to impact us negatively. And so, yeah, physical activity kind of, since it's a more immediate stressor that is driving our body to adjust or adopt strategies that allows you to be physically active, then that might either buffer or change your responses to maybe more psychological distress in that way. Okay. So how do you, how do you distinguish the effects in your study of chronic stress or, or a negative stress that they don't like versus the athlete stress that they, they do like? Since stress itself has so many different meanings, one of the big things was defining what I meant by it um, in this study. And so usually when I'm referring to stress, I'll be referring to just psychosocial stress. So either in interpersonal or perceived stress, and then our responses to that. And to do that, we had multiple measurements. So I wanted to get something that was acute. So we have things ranging from like the last month to the last year to childhood, because the original goal was to look at both inflammation and telomere length. And then ultimately, hopefully seeing a moderation in inflammation, then leading to this moderation in telomere length um, relationships. We think that childhood stress is more likely to do it. Since this is such a longer process, we think that both it needs to be kind of a longer exposure. And also when you're in childhood, um, telomeres are shortening a lot faster. So if there's a big impact there, it might lead to uh, much larger changes that then hold steadier throughout your life. Whereas just due to the um, biology of telomere length, we don't really expect something that's only a month long, say in young adulthood, to impact your telomeres um, directly. But if, if you're an adulthood and say something has been a long-term chronic difficulty, that's when we might expect to see the telomere length um, differences emerge. But what really is the speed of telomere length response. I, I mean, how fast does that change in response to stress? And then using that, tell us what you found. So when we're measuring telomere like we're getting a mean of all the chromosomes when with the method that we were using, which is a, a quantitative PCR. And so there might be some immediate changes depending on which cells are in your blood. If you have strange mix might lead you to have a shorter telomere length one day than the next, next day on, on average, but anything shorter than a few years. <laughs> Uh, of something is probably not going to be um, showing up in telomere length. Okay. So you're looking to see if being an athlete buffers or causes some type of variation in telomere length. What did you find? So we had uh, people wearing actographs for about seven days. In one of our metrics, the total activity metric, which is an average of the acceleration that your actograph measured for that entire week, we found that people who were less active people who are below the median for that had the predictive negative association. So more childhood stress, shorter telomeres. But then the people who are in the upper half actually had a positive relationship. So the people who are scoring then higher on our childhood stress questionnaire actually had longer telomeres. We we're really more expecting it to be flat and have no association. Um, one of the things that I think might be happening is actually this gets back to uh, the eustress that you were talking about, Chris, that I think people who are in the high activity group we're still in that range of either the stress that they did run into was something that maybe they had the coping resources to deal with it. So then it, instead of hurting them, just gave them more coping skills, the ability to overcome this in the future. So when they got more um, stressors impacting them, then they're just better equipped for it. There is a statistical difference in the amount of stress that both groups are reporting to. So we used the childhood trauma questionnaire. The high, the high activity group did have a lower score than the low activity group. So I think that also might 
be leading up to that point where once you hit a certain threshold, then the stress is going to be hurting you more. Whereas if it's below, maybe you have more of a chance of it being um, protective or something that you can overcome and then become stronger because of it. When you say score, what are you referring to? So uh, 35 items broken up into several um, domains. Student athletes, the domain structure of the childhood trauma questionnaire differed from the non-athletes. So usually you see these break down into different categories where all the scores in those categories are correlating with each other strongly. Specifically, there's a physical abuse and a physical neglect subscales in this that for the athletes just did not co-vary as, as you'd expect. So part of it might have been that if you have so much physical neglect or abuse, maybe you just aren't going to have the resources to become a Division One athlete. And so that might be speaking to some of more of the broader socioeconomic differences and things that drive um, people's ability to pursue these interests. So speaking of stressful events, we are all still yeah. coming down from a massive global stressful event that only just leads into more stressful events, uh, but in particular, COVID-19. Uh, and when you think about the, the collegiate landscape, it, it massively interrupted not only classes, but also athletics. Uh, and so you and your amazing mentee, who's now over at USC, uh, Anamika Nanda, she took a look at the impact of COVID-19 on stress and how that impacted the athletes in particular. Uh, so what did you find and how can it maybe better prepare us for future pandemics? Yeah, so student athletes were reporting fewer COVID-19 related disturbances. So challenges to your support networks, your ability to just kind of go outside and live your life as you need to um, and do things that you really love. And for a lot of the student athletes, it's exercise. The level of COVID-19 disturbances reported were associated with perceived stress. They reported a lot fewer of those than non-athletes did. And part of this, we think, might be that the student athletes were able to come back to campus a little bit earlier. There was a push to try to get them practicing so that the competition season could go back up. And aside from the money aspect of, of college sports, a lot of these athletes only have a few years of eligibility. I mean, they added a COVID year for most folks, but you really have this short time span to, to do these things. So I think they pushed to try to bring them to campus safely more quickly than the non-athletes. So this allowed them to be with their friends. They got to do their normal coping strategies of exercise. They had their social networks there. So they were able to have a relatively normative experience compared to the non-athlete. The lower amount of disturbances led to lower stress being experienced by the student athletes at the same time. We have a big wave at the beginning of the pandemic or fall 2020, and we have a big wave in the spring of 2022. Once we got to 2022, the differences between non-athletes and athletes was a lot smaller. And the stress went up in, in student athletes <laughs> compared to late 2020. Um, I think is pretty clear from multiple other um, avenues of research here about how losing those things harm you. In future pandemics, how can we get uh, non-athletes or people who aren't part of these special populations, how can we give them access to the things that they need? But then also with student athletes, and this was one of the ideas that Anamik brought up, it's also giving us some more insight into how well we can promote the well-being of student athletes. Are there ways that we can design either courses to have more flexibility or what are some things that we did in order to keep things functioning during the pandemic and, and how can we incorporate that into academia in the future? Because I'm sure it would help their performance. I'm sure it would help their academic performance, especially with these smaller sports that now have to make these cross-country trips a lot more often than expected. If we can build in some of those COVID protocols um, for classes in there to improve their academic experience, I think would be great. So I have a I have a follow up question, and this is just serendipitous with something I read yesterday. So 
I was going through the literature of Colton Scribner, who just graduated from University of Chicago, evolutionary orientation, now at Aarhus. He's written a lot on scary stuff, like going to scary movies, roller coasters, haunted houses, oh, cool. and looked at, and they have a COVID paper, right? So what they found was people who are really into horror genre uh, had less stress associated with COVID. The way I read, wow. read, read that, yeah, is that it's like an inoculation against certain types of stress like or or like an inoculation against horror and tragedy where they're they're better able to manage it so i think of athletics in a similar way because not only are most sports mentally and physically like they challenge you but then you're handling that with your your coursework and maybe you already answered this question but do you think that there's something special about athletics that prepares people for other types of risk? Or is it simply, as you just said, that the kind of people who can handle both are the ones who are college athletes? And if you can't handle both, you don't, like in other words, you're the kind of person who can already handle a lot. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that there's, I think my short answer would be it's it's difficult with student athletes sometimes and people who are really elite performers at these sports, um, how much is self-selected or are these just the people who could do both? Are they just going to be the ones that stick around? Um, or is there something, I I do think that there is some learned facets of how to deal with that stress. Um, unfortunately, a lot of us have also been exposed to either the abusive coaches or sometimes abusive family dynamics building around us too. And so it does kind of force you to deal with a lot of different, more varied conflicts than you might if you didn't have sports in your life well and, but, and, just, um, and yeah. we just had a game where our team was performing poorly and nick saban visibly on tv ripped a bunch of people a new asshole and they started playing better and that's not something we generally celebrate nowadays but everyone's like oh yeah he's returned to the the like toughening those players up making them stronger making them able to i don't know how being yelled at does that but well that's another one of the weird things about sports that i think a lot of us don't critically challenge no in no other place in our society can you just walk up to young adults or kids and yell at them or military like throw a hockey stick at them yeah uh, military, military. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, i feel like sports picked that up from the military <laughs> actually yeah i hadn't thought about the military well now that we've brought up all these amazing <laughs> questions uh what are you going to do next with all of these exciting things i know you've got some work that you're you're pushing out to get published but kind of what's on the horizon in research so right now one of the biggest losses i think for me with the pac-12 um dissolving was they had a wonderful student athlete health and well-being initiative where they would fund basic research into understanding student athlete experiences in their health and with the loss of the pac-12 this funding mechanism has also gone so i'm slowly trying to build up other institutions and teams to um, continue this work because I think I'm left with a lot of questions probably need to be answered with a larger sample size than what I was able to to get and also varied programs because most of our athletes were from just two or three programs so part of it might be that we're seeing something that these schools are doing particularly well maybe they're managing or, and treating their athletes in a very good way that we wouldn't see if we had larger groups so I think trying to build that up also uh, as a postdoc um does give you a chance to learn some more of those new skills that you didn't get a chance to in graduate school. So the past year has also been building up a lot of um, computational skills and trying to look more into aging and and aging biology more broadly. And so I have like this student athlete arm still going and then trying to get my feet wet in pretty much every way of 
theorizing and measuring biological aging. So just as real, really quickly, yeah. how do you end up with two postdocs at the same time in two different states and live in a third one? I still need to know the answer to that. Um, I guess when you have, well, you lose time for physical activity, <laughs> I think is the first thing. Um, Are your telomeres but, shortening as we speak because of it? I, I should. I have enough of my blood sitting <laughs> around here. I can check. Like, well, <laughs> no, no. I'm, there's I'm, enough I'm, like Wattman cards just around as tests. <laughs> test, so. Like for listeners, like who are maybe you know, doctoral students go like the logistics of this. I'm not familiar with being able to do two postdocs at once. So I am, I'm literally curious as to how that happens yeah. and how you manage it. Uh, so my first position is based at University of Utah, but it's really a project that is an international project. My PIs are at Utah, Columbia, and then uh, Mount St. Vincent's University in Nova Scotia. The study is um, all the lab work, the data collection is happening in Vietnam. So my actual location in, in the States or Canada isn't really that important. I could work remotely on that. And it was also more around the stress and aging thing. And then this other, the second postdoc opportunity came up because it was another group that was really interested in stress and immune function, immune aging. That was at uh, Penn State. So there, at least at the beginning here, has required more in-person time with them. I think the thing that has really made it work is the remote aspect <laughs> and then kind of a a half and half one for the other um, because I think one of the big things that might limit you to one postdoc normally is that is living and, and working with the team in person. One of the benefits for COVID is that it's a lot easier to meet and discuss and collaborate with people now um, remotely than it was. Well, being able to handle two postdocs is one of your talents, but if we were to hold an HBA talent show, which we are desperately trying to bring back, what would you do on stage to entertain us all? Um, I think... I'd probably do uh, uh, my Chewbacca impression or my impressions of some non-human priming. I, I don't know if my microphone will handle it, but I could try to do that for <laughs> you all right now. If, if it's a howler monkey, let me just remove my headphones. Yeah. yeah. I'll do the Chewbacca one because I think people can recognize that a little bit more. Otherwise, like when I TA and I tell people these little stories or little vignettes and then do a monkey impression, they don't really know if I'm making it up or not. This one, everyone can usually grab onto it. Um, <laughs> That's oh, really remarkably good. good. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's good. I spent like, way too much time sophomore year of college perfecting that. Yeah, <laughs> but like you have like the tonal differences really well, and that's really nope. freaking impressive. <laughs> what did you just say? Thank you. Uh, I think thank you for having me on the that's... podcast. Today. <laughs> <laughs> well answered, Rob, and well I think you've done. concluded it for us. Uh, so, yeah. Rob, if folks want to follow you and follow your work, are there any social media things that you have that they can follow or an email you prefer they contact you with? Yeah, they, well, you can definitely email me at robtennyson at gmail.com, um, or you can check out my website, which I think should also have my contact information on it, which is robtennyson.org. Um, you can also find a link to my re the research team that I started to look at student-athletes. Feel free to look at my work, the work of my mentees like Anamika Nanda or Katie Rainsberger. Follow my Twitter or X account. I just started it, and I'm still trying to get into this whole academic um, social network sphere. Well, good. We are also in that sphere, so we'll we'll follow you. You can uh, follow the Human Biology Association and the Sausage of Science on X on Threads. We are now on Instagram and. We are now, I believe, you can find the podcast on uh, Spotify as well. So we are expanding our reach. So Rob, you'll be you'll you'll be heard near and far, high and low, 
and every which way. And you can find me at, on Twitter at Chris underscore L-Y, and I don't know what I am on threads. I forget. I'm the same on all things because my name is unique enough for it. So at Kara Akabak. Sorry, my Apple Watch did not get what you just said. Apparently it does Apple not. Siri didn't like it. Didn't no. like it. Anyway, Rob, thank you so, so much for taking the time to join us today and talk about your work. And also a huge thank you to our production team who makes all this work behind the scenes. Yep. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Eric, and our new webmaster, Courtney. Uh, Courtney for all the work they are doing and um, all the co-hosting. This You've heard Kara and I today. Um, I haven't said anything about why you're hearing all these voices, but someday I might. Thank you all. <laughs> all right. Bye, Rob. Thank you so much. I need to go to a baseball game that's about to get rained out. So that's all right. Gonna be I'm going to go oh, get a tattoo nice. for 20 bucks. Do have some interesting Friday night plans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Friday the 13th, $20 tattoo. Yeah. That's, just do it yourself, Chris. Just do it yourself. Yeah.